0: Well, grab your Bible and turn to John chapter 2. Trust you have your Bible. If you don't have your Bible here today, we should be having some people coming around. Flag them down, grab one uh, to use John chapter 2. Uh, we've got some other things taking place yet today. We've got our time in John chapter 2. We're going to be uh, celebrating communion together. And then we're also going to be celebrating Baptisms of six individuals today, here uh, this morning during the first service is going to be Nancy Hancock and then Aaron and Carrie White are going to be being baptized. You're going to see brief testimonies of the others in the second service that are getting baptized as well. Um, But we've got a number of things yet to go today. So that means our time in John chapter 2 is uh, since I've kind of been on a bit of a movie kick here for, it seems like, for a couple Sundays, how about we do it this way? Uh, This Sunday in John chapter 2 is going to be more like a short film than a full-length feature movie um, in our time in the Word here. So we're going to just dig in, okay? Now, throughout this, I'm going to kind of throw out a few, hey, think about this, Uh, That is code for, you know what, maybe this is something you could pick up at lunch and talk about today, or you can this week do some more digging into into John chapter 2. That's kind of code for, I don't have time to go there, but there's some cool stuff behind it I'd like for you to consider with it. Well, let's get going. Let's pick up John chapter what? John chapter 2. Here we go. Let the signs begin. John chapter two, verses one and two. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with the disciples. Let's just pause there for a minute. Uh, It says on the third day. Uh, So what are we talking about? Well, if you look back from last Sunday, we had in verse, uh, what is it? Verse 29, the next day, then 35, the next day. Verse 43 of chapter one, the next day. Let me just a quick review. Day one was John the forerunner is interrogated by the priests and the Levites. If you were here and you remember that sent by the Pharisees, who are you, John? Then day two, John the forerunner announces that Jesus is the lamb of God. Remember, it's there's the lamb of God. Big, big, big statement. Then day three, two of John's disciples ask if they can hang out with Jesus at his residence. And they do. Hey, come on over, come on over and come and you will see. And then day four, Jesus interacts with Philip and Nathanael. Then on the third day, which means three days later, is John chapter 2, Jesus attends a wedding. Jesus attends a wedding. Now, there's a couple likely things about this wedding. I want to make note before we read the rest of the wedding story here. A couple likely things. That means that it's, we can't tell that it's for sure in the text, but from the context of the day and the way things took place and what happens, here's some likely things. One is it's likely a wedding of a relative or a family friend. In other words, Jesus was not invited to this wedding because he's like some popular preacher rock star. Okay, That's not happening on the plate at this time. Basically, Jesus is just kind of a nobody in many ways. Uh, but he's about to come and some signs are about to happen So it's likely at a wedding of a relative or a family friend Mary, I think likely here is having some kind of organizing or serving capacity role uh, just and that was so common in that day, especially with the family that he came from not a lot of wealth at all And uh, so it was the type of thing like a lot of weddings you may have had where you have family or friends who are helping in that process I think that's what's taking place here with mary Also, in the text, we're going to see where it says in verse 2, he brought his disciples. Uh, These are not the capital D disciples. The 12 disciples have not been selected yet, and actually, chronologically, will not be selected yet for some time, actually. And so here in this process, these disciples, I think, are very possibly include the five from chapter 1, maybe some others, so there's Andrew, and John, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, very possibly are there as well at the wedding. I just want to make kind of a, maybe it might seem like an obscure note. But Jesus was at a wedding. Why is that a big deal? Because John the forerunner was the voice of the one in the wilderness, like Elijah way out in the boondocks. John was so set apart, if you will, from all of life and all that was going on. He was like the total oddball out declaring in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. And we see actually a number of prophets are kind of that, so obscure away from touch of what's going on. But I just want to say this. You remember from John chapter 1, the very first Sunday? He came and dwelt among us. Don't miss this here. This teaches a whole lot about our Savior. He was at a wedding. John the forerunner wasn't. Jesus came and dwelt among us. Very cool. Do not let that just go by. Let's pick up verse three. Here's the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, Mary said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her woman, uh, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for laughing because this is awkward At least it's hard to read it because you don't know what kind of inflection to read this Well, let me talk about this conversation. I'd spend a lot more time, but I just can't today Let me just talk about a couple things that it's not and a couple things. I think that it is uh, First mary's talk mary's talk here. I don't think is like a total panic attack But I think it's in the setting to where imagine if you were at a wedding by the way weddings then lasted about a week Imagine if you were at a wedding and you're responsible for serving or if you're just caring about the fact of the serving and you see all of a sudden that one of the main components of a whole wedding, though in that day and culture the way it was, is about to be gone. Listen, I think this is a caring statement. She's observing something's happening here. Also at the end, when she responds back to Jesus in verse five, to do whatever he tells you, I don't think she's irritated with Jesus's response. I don't think she's getting snippy. And I also don't think, just in case you're wondering, if she's like the proud mom who knows she has a magician in her family. Like, do whatever he tells you because the magic is about to come. Okay, that's not what's going on here. Well, let me talk about Christ for a second here. Uh, please understand this. Jesus is right about, I'm just going to round numbers. Jesus is right about 30 years old. He's not a teenager. He's right about 30 years old here. And he's not mouthing back to his mom. And he is also not speaking in a condescending way to her. The fact of the matter is the word that's used here in Greek, is we, we have no English equivalent from it. In fact, the English Standard Version, which I use, and then the New American Standard and the King James Version, all those versions have the word woman. And now the New International Version shows the fact of the hard, how hard it is to help understand what's going on here. It, It tries to attempt by saying, dear woman, it tries to soften it because this word, the way it's used, has a softness to it, and yet there's also an abruptness to it. Not at Mary, but because of what's happening here. Listen, Mary is talking at this level, wedding level. Jesus is talking at this level, gospel level, okay? And we're going to see that later in the book as well. But Jesus is not in this statement. He's not going, oh, I could care less. He's not going, this is beneath me. Or it's like, mom, don't drag me into this. That's not what's happening here. It's just very hard for us to be able to put in English what's taking place. So let me try this. I think this is more like, ma'am, speaking to his mother. There's a respect, and yet there's also, I have a statement to make that's taking place here. Uh, That's what is not happening in the process of, there's not a whole bunch of family argument going on here. Instead, I understand Mary to be a widow. And they've got to take this into context. I understand Mary to be a widow at this time. And uh, a great part of that reality means that she relies heavily on her firstborn son That's just the way it happened And when you lived together you took care together There was a teamness between a widowed mom and a good firstborn son who took on that responsibility And she sees a problem and she directs a service to follow the instructions of her trusted and capable son Would we agree as a trusted and capable son? Alyssa? Well, this is the guy you want to direct it to And so that's what's happening. And Jesus is responding with this unique terminology here. And so what is with Jesus? Listen, uh, put it this way. I understand him to be using the situation to initiate the concept of his hour. As I said, she's talking wedding problem. Jesus is talking walk to the cross. The ministry has started. And for her, I don't think she has any idea what's going on. Maybe it's like, whoa, that was bizarre off the wall. Hey, but just do whatever he tells you to do. Uh, uh, This may be more for us than it was for them. This may be one of those statements Jesus makes that the disciples hear and are like, huh? And with what's happening. But what's taking place here, I think, is this actual walk to the cross, redemption gospel talk by Christ. This is a big statement because friends, it's all ready to start. And it's starting here. Very cool. It's really very cool. Well, let's pick up verse 6. Now, there were six stone uh, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, like 100, 150 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up in the brim. And he said to them, and now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. This is kind of semi-public. Uh, Mary knows what's going on. The, whatever the small d disciples are there, they know what's going on. And then these servants know what's going on. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. By the way, in that day, the bridegroom was responsible for the wedding as well as the cost of the wedding. And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and the people have drunk freely then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now verse 11 this the first of his signs jesus did it Canaan galilee and manifested his glory Ugh, i want to camp there but we will be and his disciples believed him after this he went down to capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days Just a couple little comments here in verse 11. This is the first of the signs. By the way, I don't know if you've ever heard or if you've grown up in church where you've heard the possibility that Jesus did miracles as a baby or as a boy. This is the first, okay? This is where it gets going. Uh, The themes of the book are all in here. Let me just put it this way. He manifested his glory, the end of verse 11. Remember from the very first week and all the theme words and the things they're going to be talking about? This is a big one. He manifested his glory. What does that mean? We're going to be talking about that in the weeks and the months to come. His glory is here from John 1, 14. The disciples believed him, John 1, 12. As many as believed him, as many as received. What does that mean? We're gonna be letting that unfold and especially next week as we start talking with Nicodemus. But I do wanna say this. These guys do not have the foggiest idea of belief that you and I talk about the term belief. They don't know about the cross yet. They don't know about the empty tomb yet. They don't know about all these things. So the status of their belief is a very, I would even say pre-infant belief with what's happening, They just know what Jesus is doing. Everything's coming to the table. Here's the big deal out of this first part. The Redeemer is on the scene of human history and the signs are beginning. That's the thing that's happening here. Listen, friends, from Genesis chapter three, we've been waiting for the Messiah, the one that is going to come. We're waiting and now it's happening. Not only is he born, but now ministry has started. I mean, the heavens have just got to be like on edge of their seat, ready to go. Bring it, God. Bring it, God. That's what's taking place here. Oh, the wedding in Cana. Let's go to uh, the... uh, Actually, look at verse 13. Um, What's right before verse 13? What does it say in your Bible? What does it say? Jesus cleansed the temple. Okay, question here, because this is kind of interesting point. Um, Is this the beginning of Jesus's ministry or is this the end of Jesus's ministry? Where are we at? We're at the beginning. This isn't a trick question. It's really not that hard. Okay, we're at the beginning of his ministry. And now, if you were to go to the Synoptic Gospels or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in fact, if you want to, you can go over to Luke chapter 19, just a few pages over and take a look. And guess what? It says that there is a cleansing of the temple that is clearly happening the week of the Passover, the week before Jesus Christ is crucified. So is it possible that John is bringing this story back and placing it here? It's very possible because the gospels, their goal is not necessarily to present everything in exact chronological order. They're trying to teach some things. And so sometimes they pull some things and some people actually think that's what's taking place. I don't think that's what's happening here. I actually think this is a similar but separate event. I think that there were two cleansings of the temple at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. And why do I say that? You'll, you'll be seeing more reasons why as we go through the series, but I'll just put this. One of the reasons is most all of what's contained in John chapters 1 through 5 are unique to John 1 through 5. Or they're unique to John and not in, contained in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Uh, the others have the, the baptism of John, but it doesn't have the information about the baptism of John. The inter, some of the post-interaction that we have here. All of the things that are taking place here basically don't happen in the other Gospels. So something else happening here, not happening there, is not anything out of the ordinary. Think about this. Jesus starts his ministry, cleansing the temple. And Jesus finishes his ministry, cleansing the temple. I think Jesus has a strong interest in a clean temple. In having a temple that is on target, that is on track, that is truly about the worship of God. Over lunch, read Romans twelve one through two, and consider how important the clean temple is to our Savior. Cool stuff. Let's pick up verse 13. The Passover, the Jews was at hand. The Passover, if you're new to the Bible, that's the annual celebration of the the Exodus story of God bringing the people out of Egypt. The Passover, the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me, Psalm 69. Very cool, way to go, small d disciples bringing scripture into the picture. 18. So the Jews said to him, "What sign do you show us for do, for doing these things?" By the way, that's a very interesting statement because here you can see on the picture the big area is where this would have happened, around the center of the temple. That's called the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could come in there, but they could not go any further on in. The court of the Gentiles was the area where this was likely happening here. And in this statement, when it says of this, what are you doing? Obviously he's causing a fuss, but do understand there were Roman soldiers who were also could see what was happening. Why didn't the Roman soldiers come in and stop this ruckus of what was going on? I don't know. But it's interesting. A lunch topic. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, this is level two talk. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They're talking on this level of the situation. He's talking on this level. Whole different level here. Verse 20, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Uh, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples then remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Sounds like the purpose of the book. John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, uh, 24. But Jesus on his part, look at this. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Who's the them? You see that? Even those who believed, he didn't entrust himself to them. How do you wrestle with that? Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. What was their belief? We'll we'll be talking about that in weeks to come. You've been hearing me say that a lot today, but we're going to be. Here's what I wanna do because of our time. I wanna just toss out two thoughts on this last section. Thought number one, The second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, the one that has come in the flesh and dwelling among us is bringing in a whole new relationship paradigm. The second person of the Trinity is bringing in a whole new relationship paradigm. It's the relationship paradigm that God had always intended. But now this is the one that's coming to to fruition. In other words, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant had a law-driven, temple-centered form of relationship with God. And that form is on the way out now. And while the Old Covenant was ultimately about grace, listen, the Old Testament was not about salvation by works. Hear me? Let me say that again. The Old Testament was not about salvation by works. Never, ever was that. It was always about grace. It's always been about faith alone in Christ alone. Or in the Old Testament, it would be faith alone in the Messiah alone by grace alone. It's always been that. But there clearly in that time was this, this, this major uh, temple centered form of relationship in their view. Jesus is bringing in the new covenant. That's what I was talking about in the beginning of John grace upon grace. He's bringing a new covenant. It's a cross-driven. It's a person of Christ-centered form of relationship with God. It's not all about the glory of the temple anymore. This is about the glory of Jesus Christ. It's not about the belief in the act of sacrificing a woolly lamb. It's about real belief in the reality of the sacrifice of the lamb of God. Things are in major change here. And when change takes place, would you not agree that when change hits, it brings out conflict? Would you agree? When change hits, conflicts come out. When change hits, we see our hearts. I'd like for you to consider this. What is your understanding of a relationship with God? What does real relationship with God look like? Let me maybe even step back from that. Do you think there is a God? And if so, what does relationship with him look like? Is your understanding based on what you think? Well, I think there's a God and this is what I think it looks like. Can I just be rude for a moment? <laughs> Who cares what you think? So I, so you are going to define God? How about we let God define him? How about we let God establish what relationship is about? That's what Christ is doing here in this whole process. Let me, let me put in a picture as well this. Let's go to thought number two. We gravitate towards forms of worship rather than the real worship of the Lord. Consider what happened. God established the Passover. That's a great thing. To be able to go back and to remember what God did to the Hebrew people, bring them out of slavery in Egypt and the miraculous work of God, bring them to the promise that he promised from time in the past. That's a great thing. Passover is a great thing. And Passover required the sacrifices of animals. That's what God did. It required the sacrifice of of lambs and of doves and the various kinds of things that Jesus uh, um, had an engagement with on that day. It also required currency exchange. Because at Passover, people would come from all over, including places outside of Israel at the time. And they would have different currencies to bring, and everything had to come back to one currency. Because what good is going and using a, a, a coin from Russia in a gumball machine here? It's, it's valueless. So that was taking place. Uh, the merchants were not the problem. They needed goats, they needed lambs, they needed birds because everybody couldn't bring it all the whole trip in. That was okay, they needed the currency exchange. That was okay, but here's what happened. What happened was originally, they used to have this, you can't quite see it here, but it's almost like where you're sitting was on the Mount of Olives looking in. And that's about right, because I've been over there and when you see it's about a half mile from the Mount of Olives, the hill of the Mount of Olives over into the wall. And so that, what they did originally was everybody was out on the Mount of Olives. All the lambs, all the doves, all the money exchange, I'll put it this way, all the hubbub that needed to take place was happening out on the Mount of Olives. So that when you could come up This was a place where real worship could start taking place in the head, in the heart, in the action of it all. And by the way, in the court of the Gentiles, what an incredible spot for people who don't know Yahweh to be able to watch people who worship Yahweh. And yet, what happened over time, it got too inconvenient out on the Mount of Olives, so they brought it up to the wall. Why? Because it was more convenient. And then, guess what? that was starting to work pretty well and things were getting problems where they were starting to make money off of it. So then it's like, hey, you know what? Let's just bring it right inside into the court of the Gentiles. You got the picture? Let's call it the slow fade. The slow fade into religiosity. Religiosity. And over a matter of some years, over some decades, what God had established had just become a marketplace conference where money could be made. How sad. The God event had frankly become a lucrative self-worship event. It became, if I do the duty, if I take the trip to Jerusalem, if I do the sacrificial ditty dance, then all is good between me and God. Let me modernize this. If I go to church, check. If I pray before a meal or if I pray before bed, check. God and I are in relationship. If I read my daily Bible crouton, check. If I serve on the setup team and the teardown team or a greeter on the children's ministry or on the worship team, check. God and I are at a good place. If I show up at small group in body, check. If I don't cuss this week, check. If I give an offering, Check. If I just stayed married one more week, check. If I'm more moral than most of my friends and co-workers, check. And the Christ that came to redeem us from our sin has become a convenient, cuddly, covering that looks like the worship of God. But in all reality, there is no relationship. It's really self-worship. We gravitate towards the forms of worship rather than the real worship of God, all of us. Don't we? Let's just be straight up. Check. And by the way, you can spend some time in verse 23 to 25. And Christ knew that. And Christ knows that. As we prepare to take communion... Um may I remind us that what we are doing is we are worshiping and who we are worshiping is the one who had the ability to change water to wine by the way did it turn into wine in the jar or when they took it out of the jar or when they were pouring it into the cup. I'm telling you, God is so crazy cool. And we get so lackluster, fade into whatever. Are you enamored with the Savior? We should be. Who can turn water into wine? Who can do that? Who can stand and declare that this, this incredible facility that took over 46 years to build in their thinking? How could anyone trash that in three days and then build it, trash it and build it up in three days? Why? Because they weren't on the same relationship talk reality. He's not talking about bricks and mortar. He's talking about the Son of God. It's a whole different thing. When we come to communion, listen, we're not just drinking a, out of a cute little plastic cup that you can just stick your tongue in. And you know, kids, remember that when you're a kid? Come on, remember that? You know, and it's cool. How do they make those injection mold? I mean, just that's where my mind sometimes goes. You know, what kind of wine? Is this Welch's? Is this juice? Is this Welch's? Or is this, what is this? These little cracker things are kind of good. Reminds me of lunch. This is worship. This is worship. And if the temple needs some cleaning, this is a great time. I ask the communion service to come down and get in place as they're coming down. I want to read a passage to you to you as we 're considering this, First Corinthians chapter eleven, Apostle Paul talking to the church in Corinth they're having some problems, and this is talking about right at the lord 's Supper. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together it is for the better, is for not for the better, but for the worse. I'm not saying this is us at all, I'm just this is what was happening at the time. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, and there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine uh, may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body. One more time, talking on a whole nother level. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's relationship. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying the cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. I just want to remember, this is an opportunity to worship. And if the temple, if we've been bringing all the hubbub and all the stuff of life that just should be not in the temple, it's time to clear house. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I would just say, get with him now. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, here in just in a moment, just go up and go to one of the stations, grab the cup, grab the cracker, bring it back to your seat, and we're going to partake. Together. Let me just pray. God, I pray as we do this that you would be front and center relationship. Amen.